After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Bethrehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and they drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rahab and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in the front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together, and Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Halam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together, and he crossed the Jordan and came to Halam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. This is the word of the Lord. Church, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do affirm today that your word endures forever. And so God, today as we have read your holy word publicly, and we're turning our attention to this passage of scripture, we would just ask, Lord, that you today would use your word to produce great change in each and every one of us. God, we pray that you would free us of distraction today. We pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us today. Lord, that our hearing would not be in the sense of us just comprehending the words, but that our hearing would be in the sense of us actually receiving your holy word. That your word would be implanted into our hearts today by the Holy Spirit so that it might produce fruit, so that it might produce change, 
so that it might produce transformation in each and every one of us, molding and forming and fashioning us into the image of Christ himself, our Savior and Lord. So God, would you use your word now to do a mighty work in and among us today? We love you. We're here to worship you, Lord. We honor you, and we pray that we would do that now, in this time, in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Please be seated. Well, we sure had a a great Easter together last Sunday, worshiping and singing songs to the Lord, and a great time of fellowship and a great time in God's word, considering the resurrection and the hope that we have as believers, because our Savior, Jesus, is alive. And as a church, we are so grateful to God for his faithfulness to us as his people. And we're so grateful to God for his faithfulness to his word every single week as we gather together and we study the word of God. And we're praying that today will be no no exception. Um, I'm excited today that we're back in our series that we've been going through, through the books of Samuel. We took a two-week break for Easter and Palm Sunday, and now we're back here in Samuel, uh, getting to about the halfway point through 2 Samuel. And so let's see what we can glean together today from this chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 10. In order to get at this text, I want to take all of us briefly back to the beginning. Back to the book of Genesis. Because at creation, God placed our first parents, Adam and Eve, in a garden paradise. He provided everything for them. They had abundant food. They had fresh water. They had a private zoo that entertained them. They had a spouse whose looks hadn't been impacted by the aging process and who never bothered with putting any clothes on. Life was good. It was better than good. Life was perfect. And in this environment, God gave our first parents only one commandment. There was only one rule that they had to make sure that they abided by. And we find it in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. I'll put it on the screen. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, of course, Eve and her husband, Adam, disobeyed the Lord. They had abundant food provided for them. They could eat, God said, of any tree that they wanted, just not this one tree. But they ate of that one tree. They doubted God's goodness, and they believed the lies of the enemy, and They sinned. And we read very swiftly in the text that their sin had consequences. But have you ever noticed that right there in Genesis, they didn't actually get what they deserved? Verse 17 said it this way, For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do you see it there? The day that they disobeyed their creator... This loving God who blessed them and provided everything for them. The very day that they disobeyed him, they should have died. The fact that they didn't can be explained no other way than to say that it was by sheer grace. And likewise, as you begin marching forward through human history, the fact that every single person who's ever lived, including all of us here this morning, the fact that we have all sinned, innumerable times in our lives and yet we continue to 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 live and to breathe and to experience goodness on God's good earth can only be attributed to sheer grace. God is so abundantly gracious and kind and patient with his creatures with people who over and over and over again don't take him seriously enough who disobey his commands, who presume on his grace, and yet he gives us patience and mercy and grace day after day. And we enjoy sunshine and the ocean and the mountains and great food 
and nice clothes and good friendships and families and so many wonderful gifts from a wonderful, wonderful God. God is gracious. God is kind. God is patient. He doesn't give to any of us what we truly deserve. And that kindness and that patience that is demonstrated by God and extended by God over and over and over again is meant to have an impact on us. We get a picture of what the effect of God's grace and kindness toward us is meant to have back in chapter 9. Now again, we've taken a break for a couple of weeks, so I've got to jog our memories here, but we're only in chapter 10. So in the last chapter, chapter 9, we get a great picture again of what the effect of God's kindness is meant to have on us. As a refresher in chapter 9, David shows kindness to a man named Mephibosheth. And the reason why David shows kindness to this man is on behalf of this man's father, who was Jonathan, David's very, very close friend. And so David wants to show kindness to any descendant that might still be alive of Jonathan. Here's how chapter 9 began. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He finds out about this man, Mephibosheth, who's Jonathan's son. Mephibosheth is crippled because he was dropped by his nurse when he was a young boy, and it crippled him for the rest of his life. And David takes Mephibosheth, and he restores to him all of his father Jonathan's lands and resources. And he also tells Mephibosheth, from this day forward, you will always sit at my table. You will have a seat at the king's table. And here's what 2 Samuel 9, 8 says. And he, speaking of Mephibosheth, paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth is completely humbled and blown away by the fact that King David would show him kindness. He recognized that he was totally undeserving. There was no way that he should be treated this way. And so he's humbled, he's blown away, and he's grateful. And this is a picture, friends, of what it looks like to respond rightly to God's kindness toward us. But the question becomes, what happens when a person responds wrongly to the kindness of God? And this is what chapter 10 is all about. So you wouldn't know it in English, But in the Hebrew, it's very clear that chapter 10 begins the exact same way that chapter 9 does, with David intending to show kindness to another person. In chapter 9, it uses the word kindness back in verse 1. I put this on the screen a moment ago and read it, but it said, it says this, David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? The Hebrew word kindness there is the word hesed. So David wants to show hesed, which really is a demonstration of God's loving kindness towards somebody. David wants to show this hesed to Mephibosheth. Well, here in chapter 10, we read this. It says in verse 1, After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally or kindly. The Hebrew word there is Hesed, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So notice with me, these two chapters begin the same way. Again, David saying, I am going to show Hesed to somebody else. And again, in chapter 9, that Hesed was responded to appropriately, whereas now in chapter 10, what we find is that Hanan is going to respond In the exact opposite way. Check it out. Let's read the first five verses together of chapter 10. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of 
the Ammonites. We'll actually stop there. In the first five verses, two of which we just read, what we find here is that David, who intends to show kindness to this man Hanan, has his kindness rebuffed. Instead of it being received gladly and with gratitude, Hanan's response is to rebuff or to snub David's kindness. Now, this whole episode is surprising to the careful reader of the books of Samuel. And the reason for that is because, first and foremost, the Ammonites are enemies of Israel. They've been at war with Israel in the past. These are not, these are not, uh, this is not a friendly nation to Israel in the books of Samuel. But not only that, Nahash, the Ammonite king who died, whose son is now reigning in his place, was a very cruel enemy against Israel. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 11, it was this same Nahash who came and he sieged the Israelite city called Jabesh-Gilead. And when the men of Jabesh-Gilead said, hey, will you make a treaty with us? Nahash's response was, sure, I'm open to that. On one condition, let me gouge out the right eyes of every man in the city. That's how cruel this man was. In response to that threat to Jabesh Gilead, Saul, Israel's first king, actually rose up and he got a whole army together and he went and defeated Nahash and delivered Jabesh Gilead. And this was really what solidified Saul as Israel's first king. So this man Nahash was a, was a serious enemy to Israel. But notice now David says something. He says that he's going to show Hanan kindness or hesed because his father Nahash had shown that to him. Now that's not recorded anywhere in the Bible. We don't know the circumstances of that. But evidently at some point in David's life, this man Nahash had dealt kindly with him. A lot of scholars speculate and say maybe it was during David's years when he was fleeing from Saul. Remember, even the Philistines showed David kindness during that season of his life. So it's possible that this other king, Nahash, helped David in some way during that time. At any rate, David here desires to deal loyally or to show kindness to Hanan for his father's sake. And so what he does is he takes some of his servants, we could think of them as ambassadors, and he sends them out of Israel across the Jordan River in the east, over into Ammonite territory to go meet with the king and try to console him about the death of his father. So they come probably prepared with some words to share. Probably they come with gifts to offer to Hanan to try to console him because his dad has died. So this is a great gesture of kindness. But look how Hanan responds. Verse 3. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their Lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. So what happens here? Well, these ambassadors from David's court show up in Hanan's court. And the counselors, they're called princes here. So the other leading men in Hanan's kingdom. They look at these ambassadors and they say to their king, they say, don't fall for this. Seriously, you think David, the king of Israel, cares about how you're feeling right now, about your grief? You think David really cares to try to console you right now and offer condolences for the death of your father? Don't, don't be so gullible and naive here. Hanan, what's really going on is David is sending spies into the land. He's trying to get these guys in here to assess what we've got going on here so he can make a plan and he can come and conquer us as he's conquered so many other peoples. Don't fall for it. And Hanan believes these counselors. And he decides that, you know what, David is my enemy. This, this kindness that David seems to be extending 
is not genuine. They question David's motives here. And as a response to this, Hanan completely humiliates David's ambassadors. He does two things to them. The first thing is that he shaves off half of their beard. Okay, Whenever I shave my beard, I usually shave parts of it off at a time, just for fun to see how different looks are. But what I've never done is shaved half the beard. That probably doesn't look good at any time or place in history. But to be certain at this moment in history, to shave off a person's beard, a man's beard, was a sign of emasculation. At that time and place, a man's beard spoke of his strength and his virility. It, was a, it spoke to his manliness. And certainly it still speaks of that today, right? That's what a beard's all about. Of course, that's not true. But then to make matters worse, especially for us as modern readers, it's not just that he shaves half of their beard off. It's that he actually takes their, their, their clothing and he cuts their clothing at the hips. Now, reminder, they didn't have jeans back then. Okay, so it wasn't like just a little midriff is going to show here, okay? Uh, men at this time, they wore a tunic. Okay, so think long baggy shirt that goes down to about the knees. Some elites wore longer robes that went down to their ankles. But either way, to cut their clothing at their hips meant that things were going to get very drafty, right? They had nothing on underneath that. So this was incredibly humiliating. He exposes them, he shaves half of their beards, and these men are sent out of his court, completely ashamed, completely humiliated in the court of Hanan. So David's kindness is rebuffed here. Now, Hanan's mistake here is one of the most common relationship killers there is. What's his mistake? Well, it's misjudging another person's motives. This is one of the most common relationship killers there is. And it's so commonplace. It's one of those things that so many of us do without even thinking about it. Somebody does some action and we just read into their motives behind it. Or somebody says something or tells us why they're doing something and we read into their motives underneath the surface. We say to ourselves, well, the reason why he's doing that is because of this over here. Or the only reason she said that is because of this. Or I know they said they were doing this for that reason, but the only real explanation must be this. We read into people's motives and we assume we know what's going on at the level of their heart. And it oftentimes destroys relationships. Now, obviously, there are certain people whose track record have consistently demonstrated that suspicion on our part is justified. But putting those situations aside, family, I would say to us, as a general rule, we ought to assume the best about other people, especially other believers. In 1 Corinthians 13, 7, Paul writes this. He says, love believes all things. Love believes all things. Now, that does not mean that love is gullible. It does not mean that love is naive. It means that love believes the best about others in every situation. We assume the best. Innocent until proven guilty. <laughs> Okay, we believe the best about other people. In the Christian community, our general posture should be to believe the best about one another. Trusting that another's motives are good and noble. And will be a much healthier and holier community for it. And yet, even while we assume the best about others... We all need to be prepared to have our own motives misjudged from time to time. Like David here, who is operating out of pure motives. There will be times in our lives where you have pure motives, and yet somebody else misjudges your motives and accuses you of doing what you're doing for the wrong reasons. Sometimes your acts of kindness are not received as such. But you cannot let that discourage you from showing God's hesed or the kindness of God to other people. 
We are called by God to be kind and to be loving toward people regardless of how they respond. Jesus put it this way, we are to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So we're to operate with kindness and loving kindness no matter what. And David demonstrates that here. He's kind. He extends kindness to Hanan, but as we've seen, his kindness is rebuffed. But now I want you to notice something. David's first concern when he hears about what happened to these ambassadors is not his first concern is not the insult that he himself has personally experienced. Because make no mistake about it, when Hanan cuts the beard of these ambassadors, when he cuts off their clothing and exposes them, first and foremost, this is a slight against David. These people represent David. He's the king. So this is an insult against him as the king. And yet notice now as we look at verse 5 that David's first action in response has nothing to do with saving face for himself and everything to do with covering the shame of the men that he rules over. Look again at verse 5. When it was told David, he sent to meet them. For the men were greatly ashamed and the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. So when word gets back to David in Jerusalem about what Hanan had done to his men, he took immediate action to do what? To remove their shame. So you've got to understand that Jericho is a city to the east of Jerusalem. It's on the way back from the Ammonite kingdom. And David says, listen, I want, I want these men to remain in Jericho. So he sends out a delegation to go meet these men as they're traveling home. And he says, I want them to remain at Jericho with these instructions until your beards have grown and then you can return to Jerusalem. And although it doesn't say it, we can read into the text the following words. And make sure to get a new tunic while you're there. See, David's point here is that he wants to cover their shame. See, this is pre-internet. This is pre-television. It's likely that these men were unknown in the city of Jericho. Their relationships, their colleagues, everybody they worked with every single day, their family, those people were all in Jerusalem. And so these men could come to Jericho. They could stay there for a few weeks until their beards regrew. And then they would be able to return back to their families and to their city and to their workplace with their dignity intact. It's a beautiful move by their king to show that he cares for them and he meets them here in their shame and he removes their shame. What a leader. Family, can you see here in David a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ? The king that you and I worship. Jesus is not ashamed to be identified with his people. Just like David was not ashamed to be identified with these men. David didn't say, oh my gosh, something shameful happened to you. I'm done with you. I need people who have got everything put together in their lives. No, David met them in their shame. And Jesus meets us in our shame and he restores our dignity as well. In Mark chapter 1 there's this famous story of a leper who comes to Jesus. And when he gets near to Jesus, he falls down on his knees and he begs Jesus. And he says this in Mark chapter 1. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, leprosy was a horrendous condition to have in the first century. It was thought to be a disease that was incurable, but also highly contagious. What that meant is that for any person who had leprosy, they were not only experiencing the physical pain and suffering from that disease, which would gnaw away at their body, but they were also, also socially isolated. They actually had to live in what were called lepers' colonies outside of the community. Their only other social interaction was with other lepers. Anytime they came within the vicinity of a person who didn't have leprosy, they had to actually call out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Just letting everybody know, I'm dirty, 
I'm unclean. I'm an undesirable. I'm an untouchable. That was the experience of their life day after day. To make matters even worse, according to the Old Testament law, their uncleanness meant that they were unfit to be among God's people as they worshiped the Lord. So they were cut off spiritually in Israel as well. So think about that. For this leper in Mark chapter 1, his entire life was suffering. His entire experience was one of isolation and shame in the community. And this man comes to Jesus and he calls out to Jesus and he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And here's what we read in Mark 1, 41 and 42. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Now, many of you know this, but in the Bible, leprosy is often used to portray sin. Like leprosy, our sin impacts us physically. The fact that we all age, the fact that there's disease, and the fact that we all die is a direct result of sin entering into the world. So sin impacts us physically. But sin also impacts us socially. Our sin alienates us from one another. It causes division between people. And finally, of course, our sin impacts us spiritually. It makes us unclean to be in God's holy presence. And our sin often leads us to feel ashamed. In Romans chapter 6, verse 21, the Apostle Paul calls the sins that we used to live in, and I quote, things of which you are now ashamed. See, our sin leads us to feeling shame. We're ashamed of what we've done. But Jesus comes and he meets us in our sin and in our shame. Through his death on the cross, he pays for our sin and he endured the shame that accompanies our sin for each and every one of us. Hebrews 12, 2 puts it this way. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is a wonderful savior. He's an amazing king. He comes and meets us in our sin, meets us in our shame, and he takes away the reproach from us. So that you and I who are in Christ by faith can have our dignity restored. We can start walking around with our heads lifted high once again, knowing that we're not who we used to be. We are now servants of the king. And we walk in that new life. It's amazing. So these Ammonites, under Hanan's leadership, rebuff the kindness of David in these first five verses. But guess what? They didn't stop there. Look at verse 6. It says, When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. Now, the events that begin here at verse 6 mark a shift in the chapter. And it's a shift now away from David's kindness being rebuffed to now David's enemies being subdued. That's what the rest of this chapter is about. It's about David subduing his enemies. Because once these men in Hanan's court mistreated David's ambassadors, they immediately realized the gravity of their mistake. They knew that they had made themselves a stench to David, the scriptures say. Now, the word stench is a very strong word. Okay, there are plenty of odors that are unpleasant, but they're tolerable. Okay, you can kind of just endure them and get past them. But a stench is the kind of odor that is so strong, that is so rancid, that you have to take immediate action to get rid of it. It requires a response. It smells that bad. And these men are recognizing, you know what? What we did to David's men was so atrocious that there's no way that David is going to overlook this fault. David is, is, is required now to respond in kind. Obviously, 
in their minds, they're thinking David is going to develop his own army. He's going to gather his army and he's going to march in for battle. Now, they could have done something else at this moment. They could have recognized, as they did, the gravity of what they had done. And they could have come to their senses and said, you know what? We could actually apologize. We could sue for peace. We could tell David, we've made a mistake now. We could send our own ambassadors with gifts and try to appease King David and appease his wrath. But rather than doing that, they just double down on their animosity toward him. In verse 6, which we just read, what do they do? They hire out other armies that belong to the Syrians, who are their allies. And they build a coalition to now make war against Israel's king, King David. And all of this now brings David to action. Look in verse 7. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. Now, as God's representative, David demonstrated incredible kindness, as we've talked about. But ultimately, we're realizing now in verse 7 that David's kindness had a limit. That as David's kindness was resisted, and as those who resisted his kindness now hardened themselves against David, it was producing a response. David was going to now rise up and bring down the hammer. And he sends his mightiest soldiers, his mighty men with Joab, his commander of his army, to go out and deal with the new threat. And when Joab's army comes to meet the new threat, he finds this coalition of forces. Look at verse 8. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rahab and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. So, so see the battle scene with me here. Again, there's the Ammonites, Hanan's men, and there's the Syrians that they have hired. So there's two different armies that are, in a, that are working together. The Ammonites are outside of their city. Okay, so they're standing outside of their city walls, ready to defend their city. But all of these Syrian forces are out in the open country. And Joab finds himself in the middle of these two forces. Look at verse 9. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now, we have not heard from Joab since back in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, Joab's big mistake there was that he actually murdered a man. He murdered a man named Abner. And King David was very unhappy about it. But now we see from chapter 10 that whatever else we might say about this man, Joab, two things are very clear. First, Joab is a brilliant tactician, which helps explain why David keeps him as the commander of his army. Joab here realizes that he's stuck between two different forces, okay? He's got an army in front of him. He's got an army behind him. And so he devises a plan. He takes the strongest men, and with them, he's going to oppose the forces of the Syrians out in the open country. And then he takes, presumably, the larger a group of soldiers, and he leaves them under the command of his brother Abishai to go and fight against the, the, the city of the Ammonites. And his calculations here are right, of course, because he's victorious. So he's a brilliant tactician. But the second thing that we see about Joab is that despite all of his shortcomings, this was a man of faith. The name of the Lord is only used once in this entire chapter, and here it is on the lips of none other than Joab. He says, and may the Lord do what seems good to him, verse 12. Friends, this is a, a statement of faith. This is a statement of a person who is just entrusting themselves to the Lord. Bible commentator Tim Chester notes that 
What Joab says here is similar to what the three young Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say back in Daniel chapter 3. When the mighty Nebuchadnezzar is, is taking them and throwing them into the fiery furnace. Because do you remember the story? The three young Hebrews will not bow down and worship his statue. And so he's ready to take these young men and throw them into the fiery furnace. And their response is, hey, our God can deliver us even out of a fiery furnace. But they go on and they say, but even if he chooses not to deliver us, we will not bow down and worship you. And Joab here is saying something similar. We're, I'm going to stand and fight. Abishai, we're going to stand and fight. And you know what? Whatever the Lord sees fit to do, that's what we'll trust in. Tim Chester draws this application. He says, and I quote, In any given situation, God may deliver us or he may not. He may intervene as we hope and he may not. But we can be confident that he will do what is good. And we can be confident in our ultimate eternal salvation. And so we can be brave. We cannot fail, not ultimately, end quote. That's the perspective of the Christian. You know what? I want God to intervene in this situation this way. I want God to heal me of this disease. I want God to provide this job for me. This is what I hope happens. But you know what? At the end of the day, I can trust that he will do what is good. And I can trust that ultimately he will not fail me. Because when it's all said and done, my sins are paid for in Christ. And eternal life belongs to me. And I will be in the presence of the Lord forever. And with that hope, we can face any challenge in life with bravery and confidence. And this is how Joab feels. He doesn't know how this battle will turn out, but he entrusts its outcome to the Lord. Now, quick note here. Joab and his brother Abishai are a really, really good example here of Christian brotherhood. Look at what Joab says to his brother Abishai. He says, listen, if the enemy that you're facing is too strong, and you start, you start losing, I'm going to come help you. But if the enemy that I'm facing is too much for me to handle, then, then you need to come and you help me. You come get my back and you help me. You come to my aid. This is a beautiful picture of Christian brotherhood. As Christians, we face many challenges on the road to heaven. We have a great adversary called the devil. We have our own flesh that is easily enticed by temptation. And we face a world that is very often standing in opposition to Jesus and to true righteousness. And at times, these opposing forces that all of us have to face become too much for us to handle. But as Christians, God has not left us left us to fight on our own. We're not isolated. No, no, no. God has saved us into community, into the family of God. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a standing pact, just like Joab and Abishai. And what does that look like? It looks like all of us having this posture toward one another. When you are weak and I am strong, I am here to help you. But when I am weak and you are strong, you are here to help me, to support me, to strengthen me. So all of us live between two realities in relationship to one another. We all, if we're in a position of strength in relation to another believer, our heart should be to help them. We should always be assessing the needs of those around us within the body of Christ. And when we become aware of somebody who's, who's in a place of vulnerability or in a place of need, our heart should be to say, am I capable of helping them? Are they in need of friendship? Well, I could fill that need. Are they in need of accountability? Can I provide accountability? They need prayer. Well, I'm here to pray for you. Maybe they need financial support. Well, I'm financially strong right now. We should always be assessing and finding out, is there need that I can meet? 
And on the other end of the spectrum, every single time that you yourself find yourself overwhelmed and in need, you should know with confidence that there are brothers and sisters in Christ right here who are willing and able and glad to be able to help you. And I think we need to hear that sometimes because I think a lot of us are either not humble enough or just not secure enough in our place here in the body of Christ to actually admit when we have need. But family, that's what we're here for. We're here to support each other and help each other. So do you need prayer? Ask for it. Do you need accountability? Ask for it. Do you need help in some other way? Do you need a babysitter for your kids so you can have a date night that's overdue? Ask for it. What do you need? Be willing to ask for help. So Joab and his brother have this conversation. They have this battle plan put in place. They go out and they face the enemy. And here's the outcome in verse 13. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians. And they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled... They likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. So they're victorious. The Syrians want nothing to do with Joab and his mighty men, so they run off into the woods. The Ammonites see that and see now Joab probably turned to come join his brother Abishai against them. They want nothing to do with that, so they retreat back into the walls of their city. And notice with me that verse 14 does not say, and then Joab sieged the city of the Ammonites and raised it to the ground. No, it says, Joab, after the threat was neutralized, turns and he goes back to Jerusalem. And possibly this would have been the end of it. We just don't know. But the Syrians, they were not willing to let things go. They were not going to tolerate this defeat at the hands of David. Particularly, a strong Syrian king by the name of Hadadezer, who we've already met back in chapter 8. He's the king of a place called Zobah. He's frustrated by the defeat that he's experienced at the hands of David. And so he gathers even more soldiers in verse 16. It says this, And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. And they came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army, of Hadadezer at their head. So he goes after his his troops have retreated and he gathers more Syrians and he comes back to fight with David again. And this is a really, really bad decision because the battle will once again end in David's favor. Look at verse 17. And when it was told David, he gathered all of Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Hadadezer could have walked away. But again, he continues to harden himself against the Lord's anointed. And the defeat that he experienced is astounding. Thousands and thousands of troops. His army, his his coalition that he developed is shattered. And from that day forward, all of these other kings who used to be submissive to Hadadezer now make peace with David and they submit themselves under David's rule. This is the moment for this man Hadadezer that his power in that region is broken forever. He has lost his pace, his place rather, as the real authority in this region. Now in this chapter, David is once again portrayed as a kind and a benevolent king. David is not obligated to show kindness to Hanan any more than he was obligated to show kindness to Mephibosheth. But he does so nonetheless. And how is he repaid for this act of hesed toward a rival kingdom? Well, as we saw, his kindness was rebuffed. And the Ammonites hardened themselves against David. 
And ultimately, this path is shown to be utter foolishness. To harden yourself against the Lord's anointed is a dead-end road. The author here makes it clear that David's patience and David's kindness has its limits. And family, as we close, let me make one final connection. That's probably very obvious to most of us. As the Lord's anointed, David represents God himself, who according to Exodus 34 verse 6, is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And as the Lord's anointed, David points forward to Jesus, God's ultimate anointed one. The arrival of Jesus 2,000 years ago was the arrival of kindness par excellence. Speaking of Jesus, we read that in him, this is Titus 3, 4, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. When Jesus got here, the kindness of God was on display more than it's ever been in the history of the world. The reason for this, of course, is because through Jesus... God made a way for our sins to be forgiven and our broken relationship with him to be restored. If we will respond rightly to God's kindness, that again has been displayed through Jesus' death and his resurrection, we will be forgiven. And we, like Mephibosheth, will have a seat at the king's table forever. But if we rebuff God's kindness we say, I don't need Jesus, I don't want Jesus, then a certain destruction awaits us. In Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we learn that God delays his judgment toward us because he's giving us time to repent. But we also learn that we must not show contempt for his kindness like Hanan did. Here's what Romans 2 says. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What's Paul saying? He's saying God's kindness is meant to draw you to repentance. But for any person who hardens their heart, Paul is just being honest with you. He's saying in doing that, you're just storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's judgment when Christ returns. See, every person has two options in front of them. We either respond like Mephibosheth with gratitude and humility and trust in Jesus and experience God's blessing forevermore. Or we harden ourselves against God's kindness like Hanan and experience destruction. And so if you are not a follower of Jesus today, the admonition from this passage is summarized well by Isaiah 55. And we'll close with these two verses. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Seek the Lord while he may be found.